Hello and welcome to the Book Cave. Today I'm delighted to be interviewing best-selling author Marion Lennox. Marion, welcome to the Book Cave. Thank you very much, Jen. Wonderful to have you here. Now, Marion Lennox is an internationally famous author, having written over a hundred novels for Harlequin Mills and Boone. Marion, a long and illustrious career. Thank you. It's certainly long. <laughs> yes, indeed. But quite a journey too, I think. It has been a journey and a, and a really enjoyable one. It's been a whole lot of fun along the way. That's fantastic. Now, you began writing back in the late 1980s, is that right? I did, uh, yes. I was, a, um, I was teaching statistics at our local university. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I knew what life was all about. I was very serious about that. <laughs> um, and it was also very busy. I was raising children, um, but I was on family leave with my second child. Um, I've always loved writing, but it's been a, a, a fun hobby. I was brought up in a rural community. Um, if you were born on a dairy farm, you didn't become a writer as a profession for heaven's sake you either became a teacher or a nurse Mm. or maybe you got a job in a bank now that was sort of really the height of your aspirations um but I was good at maths at school so I was steered absolutely into math sciences uh and so that's the direction I took um but when I was on maternity leave with my second child I um went to playgroup one day and somebody knew someone who'd written Mills and Boone Mm. and I thought That'd be fun, but I also was quite scoffing. I said, that would be just money for jam. <laughs> and they said, put your money where your mouth was. So it started as a bet. Um, and I went home and thought, I can either scrape the Play-Doh off the kitchen floor or I can put my hand to writing a romance. And it started from there, really. Wow. Now, the, the phrase Mills and Boone, this is a fairly loaded phrase, isn't it? It is a fairly loaded phrase. It's 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 quite odd the way it's become um, a title and sometimes quite a derogatory title um, mm-hmm. on its own. Mills and Boone started in the First World War um, as a publisher. They published all sorts of fiction. Um, because of the shortage of paper, they were forced to um, concentrate on one particular genre, so they decided that the most profitable was romance. Mm-hmm. So um, the brothers, the, um, the um, people who founded the organisation decided that they would just focus on um, short romances. Those romances just took off. They've been enormously popular. Mills and Boone were then taken over by Harlequin, which is an American corporation, which is just vast. It's an international corporation now. Um, And that's actually now been taken over by HarperCollins. The Mills and Boone books are known as Mills and Boone in um, the UK and in Australia. They're known as Harlequin in the US. And they're known as all sorts of things in every different country that they're, they're actually, um, they now go into over 120 countries in 30 languages. Wow. So they have different, so they're known as, as under a different um, title wherever they go. Okay. So this sort of um, idea that, you know, even when you were beginning, someone sort of said, oh, they knew someone who'd written a Mills and Boone. There's this sort of intrinsic idea that that's something that's not only a bit derogatory but it's it's easy it's something that oh well you can sort of just flick that off I had a friend once who said um, her sister was going off she was going away for Easter a four-day weekend 
and she was going to write a Mills and Boone, her first Mills and Boone. She'd never written one before, but she was just... So there seems to be this idea that this is something that's very easy to do and anyone could do it. And isn't there something about a formula or something? That's right. And when I started, I guess I was the same. I thought mm. the same. Um, I, I had read a few, um, but not very many, I'll admit. And I had the idea that it was you basically plugged a man and woman in the start. Um, by page five, they had to have a, um, a frisson of excitement. First kiss on page 30, maybe. An argument on about page 100. <laughs> <laughs> As we were getting a bit risque, maybe sex by about page 150. Um, and it wasn't until I started seriously looking at them mm. and realising how different each book was that uh, it hit me that, first of all, these books were um, totally um, unique. Each one was unique. And the second thing that hit me was that it was hard to write a good romance. Uh, you... The readership for romance is vast and crosses and in just totally all social demographics. Right. Um, my books come out in, well, um, they come out in Hebrew, they come out in Arabic, um, they come out in the Philippines, they come out in Thailand, you know, Thailand and Iceland. Um, but women the world over really, really enjoy a good romance. They say that about half, about 50% of the world's fiction market is romance. Having wow. said that, um, the the demographic who reads them is, you know, you have politicians who read them, you have um, people who, you know, top scientists who read them, you have 13-year-old girls who read them, you have 90-year-old people in, Roma, in nursing homes who read them. They are fun... They are fabulous fantasy. They're designed to give you time out, just to give you a break from the real world and have fun. Um, so escapism. It's escape. It's sheer escapism. It's okay. just come on in here and have a rollicking good time. Become a heroine for for um, the two hundred or so of pages. Hours, that's yeah. right. Um, forget the world and just give yourself. Um, have a, maybe have a glass of wine, have, a, have some <laughs> chocolate, have some chocolate if you like, <laughs> but just give yourself a treat. So but, okay, so what then? Because surely isn't that the same for a lot of people who read crime fiction? Sure, science ab fiction. Abs absolutely the same. But what I didn't get when I first started was that how each book has to have its own unique character and that readers within the romance genre are incredibly choosy. They choose their authors, they like their stories. Harlequin recognises that. They they actually separate books as much as they can. So the, the Mills and Boone books that you may be most familiar with yeah. um, would be this type of, um, this yeah, type of book. Yeah, I've got a few here. Um, yeah. So... This one's Bad. obviously a Christmas one. That's right. So, but if you um, if you start writing um, for them, you can actually look and see what particular um, type of romance you like. So, if you want a really sexy romance, then you would pick up a Harlequin Deer. If you wanted um, an inspirational, um, that means it that's a actually a, a um, church based, okay. faith based um, romance. 
then Harlequin has the imprint for you. If you want a longer historical book, if you want a longer romance, you know, maybe a, a nice thick meaty right. romance, if you want a western romance, if you want crime, um, anything, oh. you, anything you want, as long as it's got a man, a woman, a happy ending. There are actually, if you say, okay, does it expand there? Do we have two women in a happy ending, two men in a happy ending? Harlequin themselves don't um, write gay romances. But there are lots of publishers out there who do, and that's incorporated into the vast romance genre. Right, that's part of that whole romance, that's part of that whole romance um, industry. That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's just two people finding each other. I think that's actually a universal dream, is to a universal desire to find somebody who will always be in your corner, someone who will love and respect you, make you laugh, and make your toes curl at the same time. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, and I think that crosses all national borders, all political borders. It's just a, a universal... Well, that's a hu- surely just a basic human need. It's that's, something we've evolved into wanting, surely. That's right. So why then does it get this goffing sort of attitude from Sony? Why is... How is it that Mills and Boone has become a kind of shorthand for... Not very good writing, easy, formulaic, when clearly from what you're saying, it isn't any of those things. It's actually something quite other and and actually something that it seems to me, particularly in this quite challenging world that we live in, um, something that's actually quite useful to people, something that sounds hopeful and lighthearted and happy and perhaps, as you say, is an escape. So why then the denigration? It's very easy to denigrate. Uh, True. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's women writing for women and oh. pretty much having <laughs> fun. And I mean, how dare we? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's an easy it's an easy genre to be even for for women for women who wish to be seen as intellectual equal, if you like, intellectually superior. Um, an easy way to do that is to actually scoff at your own sex, writing for your own sex, because you're seen as slightly better, you're writing for the entire oh, um, for the entire um, massive audience out there, not just concentrating on something, which is pretty much... Um, there are lots of men who, who read romances, but the vast majority of people who read romances are women. Um, so I think it's actually very easy to, to scoff at something to make yourself seem slightly superior I would never I would I, the number of people who said to me I would never read one of those and in fact they never have which is you know, which makes it a little hard to see how they can judge how, then. how they can judge or they've read one um and you can and okay. that's right and and the the number of bad crime fiction or science fiction um, well, or literary fiction. Or literary fiction that I've actually read and thrown away in disgust because I've been, it's made me miserable or I've just been, it's really badly written yes. um, or it's just badly totally... It, yeah, it's totally sort of paint-by-numbers type thing. Yeah. I've, it, it, but if you read one Mills and Boone out of the millions that have been written over the, year, over the years and say that is just total rubbish and then you say, okay, I will now can the entire publication I will can every woman who falls who loves right. this, this type of thing and every person who's it's ever written one we also didn't help ourselves I believe Harlequin didn't help that by publishing in the 80s the bodice ripper became a thing oh yes um, yes and that was really a um 
a whole, as I said, once that they do have sort of streams. So this was a whole, it was a stream within the whole genre, which was, and which was really glorifying the alpha male. Um, so, so the alpha male being the strong, domineering man who assumes that a woman wants to be subjugated or. Um, you know, taken. That's right. And the her- so it's not a marriage or a, or a relationship of equals. That's right. and the heroine in, in those books tended to be fairly weak. Tended to be um, waiting for the hero to turn her into something of worth. Right. Um, so she was the, the sort of typical waiting for the knight on white charge. Are to these come and rape her things. books? Or often near, they got very close. Very close to, 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 rape. to rape. Really, sort of no mean, well, no just, means yes. No meant really try harder. You know, right, right. So no means right. sort of yeah, or no means sort of push me harder. Because it's um, interesting, the term bodice ripper didn't actually come into being until the nineteen eighties. I think it was nineteen eighty four or five. That's, and yet it's been um, overlaid over books, many books written before the term actually came into being. That's right, which I find interesting. But it's stuck, and it was a very, yeah. it's a very easy label to denigrate an entire genre, um, and we can't escape it. I, and and in terms of our perception by the public, I believe we were just trying, we were just starting to come out on the other side. I felt myself, in terms of respect for what I did, we were actually just coming out on the other side of it. Right. When Fifty Shades of Grey hit oh, the publicity right. um, big time, yeah, it was one book which was just it somehow caught the, the public imagination, caught the media's imagination and hauled us right back to the 1980s, I believe, in terms of perception of, of what we do and what all romance is about and how one book can do that. Um, I believe it was, for me, I think it was a sort of a gut-wrenching period in, in publishing history. Gee, that's really interesting hmm. because that book certainly did um, capture the public imagination in, in completely unforeseen ways because it's not a, I don't think it's a great work of, of piece of writing. Clearly, it had a, some kind of. There was something very compelling about the story. Um, but the funny thing is that there's been plenty of erotic romance written before that um, and after that hasn't had that same impact, which I find quite interesting. I think lots of people. There, there were lots of people who actually enjoyed that book for what it was, and and mm. you know you can still find the bodice rippers out there. Um, yeah. There are still a subset of the population who enjoy that type of sure. that type of book. Yeah, yeah. In the same the same way as I mean, you know, sort of bondage books. They'll be out there, and yeah. um, there's all sorts of strange, weird books out there, and and this world's so big that there was always a, a subset of the community who looked for them and loved them. So, but what you're saying is that it's it, it's obviously very difficult as an author to simply be tarred with this sort of one brush when, in fact, that's not what you're doing at all, and not what a lot of your fellow authors are doing. That's right. Either. My my books, I have a lot of fun with my books, but my hero and heroine are always equals. Yeah. Um, there's there's always um, they're never waiting for. A romance to turn them into whole people. They are completely independent characters. Um, they're fun and feisty, and the romance certainly adds to their lives. Um, but you always have the feeling that they they'd be getting on. They were getting on fine beforehand, and they'd get on fine afterwards. But hang on, there's some great yeah. There's some great fun to be had during the during the romp. 
And some good sex. And some, uh, well, I am. <laughs> but then, hang on, are you one of these authors who depict sex, or are you a I am, stop I have, at the... I have always been... I, my, when I write, I am in my heroine's head. So for the period of my book, I am, I am my heroine. Right. And I very much enjoy that. Having really graphic sex within the pages always feels to me a bit like having sex with the kids outside oh. the living room and the bedroom door open. Okay. I just, it just feels ugh, I, I, uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable and public and feels like I'm exposing myself and I just can't do it. So I always get up and close the bedroom door. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise to my readers, but my bedroom door stays pretty much shut. Occasionally, occasionally for the, in the storyline... It has to open. I had I wrote a book um, recently where I had um, a couple who'd had twins in their, early on in their marriage, and they lived up in the Blue Mountains. And um, one night, coming home for Christmas when their twins were quite small, um, he fell asleep at the wheel, and the twins were were both killed. So the story opens four years later as bushfires are threatening the Blue Mountains. And both of these, my, my couple, have actually gone off to do their own thing. They've separated. The grief from losing their twins has just completely separated them. But the, the house in the Blue Mountains has just stayed because neither of them can bear to just come back to it. It's really become a sort of a shrine to the, to the children. The um, and it's stayed there um, in the back of their minds, in their hearts, but they've gone on with their lives in completely different directions. And then a bushfire starts threatening the Blue Mountains. And they, well, everybody's being evacuated. They um, come from different directions to actually pull out the things that are most meaningful. You know, most of them are sort of thinking the teddy bears, the, the toy trucks or whatever, they can't be burnt, so they come back. And then, of course, they're trapped in the house so this is all within the sort of first chapter they're actually trapped in the house and seeing each other again and the heightened emotions mm. or whatever and they are still married but they've um as i said four years separation and they come together in just mutual need because that lust that desire and that underlying love is still there so they have so that's actually quite a, a solid and fairly graphic sex scene because it needed to be it needed to just the whole thing just escalated into mm. the fact that these two people really need each other and then of course all the other complications the reason why they haven't been able to stay together come back and they have the rest of the story really to try and resolve to try and figure out how they can actually go on from there so so that's that's one instance where I actually had to write a sex scene and it was very difficult I have to basically write with my eyes closed (laughs) (laughs) so there must have been an evolution though in the sort of um, graphic nature of of sex in these Milton Boons because certainly when they began specialising in the um, late 1930s, early 40s, and then through the 50s and 60s, you weren't able to, as a Mills and Boone author, you certainly weren't able to do a lot of things that you can clearly do now. So you've been writing since the 1980s? My first book was my first, first book was published in 1990. It was written in 88. Right, written in 88. Mm. So you've been writing for 30 years this I guess year? I have been writing Wow, that's years. amazing. So... Um, have you seen an evolution? How, what are the changes that have occurred? 
I have seen an evolution. I think the evolution uh, is solidly to the woman having to be um, independent, feisty, mm. even in the really, even in the books with the really alpha heroes, the the, the hero who comes across as totally masculine, um, totally you know, overpowering. Um, the the heroine still absolutely has to have her own career, has to have right. be somebody of own, and that's become increasingly important, increasingly important to the readers. Um, the 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 heroine that they can identify with um, is of worth without the hero, um, because more and more I think women do identify with the books are designed so that women can identify with the heroine, and I don't believe that women now can identify with being just somebody who looks after the house and the kids and is basically a doormat. That's right. my that's the biggest evolution. So in a way then you could actually say that Mills and Boone novels from their inception to now are really a kind of cultural artifact. They're really reflecting surely social mores and current social values. Would you say? I think they are. And the other lovely thing about it is that because we're totally cross cultural lines, um, what what the mores that we're actually espousing are in fact becoming worldwide. My books, um, as I said, they're published in the Middle East and they're published in Israel, um, and in a sense, the values that I espouse. Um, and that I hold dear um, are something that's, that it gives me a huge thrill to know that they are actually being read and talked about um, in so many different in so many different cultures. And maybe even there are there are little things that you put in our books n- never preach. We don't become political or whatever, no. but there's small things that we can bleed in, which are important to us as authors. That you can actually bleed in and become. It, I mean, s- small amounts of environmental concerns, mm-hmm. um, the fact that women have the right to say no, um, the fact that the, the alpha hero can be put in their place or whatever. That's it, it seems to me an important and wonderful thing yeah. that that message can actually go out. Because also you you have specialised in the medical romance line, is that right? I write um, half and half. If you like. okay. I, um, I tend to... Um, I started my first... My first my first book was um, my heroine was a doctor, right? And that was actually that landed on the on the editor's desk just as they were starting to rethink the their medical line. Their medical line back in the sixties, seventies were doctor nurse romances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you had um, the sort of overpowering doctor who made yeah, every nurse basically just oh, crumple Swoon over like, Dr. Dreamy. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, yeah, they did it, that in Grey's Anatomy, anything, after all. Anything you said went. Yeah, yeah, yes. So, so That wonderful joke, what's the difference between God and a doctor? God doesn't think he's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that was pretty much the same. I'm just finding some wonderful old pictures at the time yeah my my um my husband was a doctor so i never actually had that misconception <laughs> no well, so, so we had um 
On Call Sister. This is from 1958. It's a black and, a black and white photo, but... Um, you know, very much the doctor and the nurse and then staff nurse at St Christopher's in the old-fashioned um, nurse's outfit with the head, you know, oh, these, yes. the veil and everything. So you've obviously moved on a great deal well, from that, there, or Mills and Boone certainly that has. That first book landed on my on my editor's desk just as they were starting to rethink those and my heroine was a, um, a doctor who'd just gone in to a logging camp in oh. in. Tasmania and was setting up as a doctor in a totally all-male environment um, so it was quite different for them and a bit of a shock um, and and very fortunate because they were just as the things have to change and maybe I was just the girl to, to um, propel that. To do so that. that was lovely. Okay. But since then I've also written a whole lot of straight romances without without medicine. Right, okay. Mostly because I get bored. I'm writing I've been writing about four or five books a year for a num from well, I'm up to hundred and sixteen books. So so you know, writing medicals, every book gets a bit boring. So but I go back and forth. But not boring for the reader, one hopes. They can't be. They absolutely can't be. Um, if my books, if my books become stereotypical, first of all, they bore me yeah. and drive me crazy, and I can't <laughs> go on. And then they land on my editor's desk, and they bore her, and she boomerangs them straight back at me. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're writing three, four, or five books a year, what's your writing methodology? How do you actually achieve that? It's my job. It's what I do, um, and it's fun. I love my job, uh, so I guess that's the biggest important mm, part. Mm. Um, but I do have contracts, so I, I do um, write. With, I do use a fair amount of discipline. There has to be a lot of self-discipline involved if you're going to write at the pace that I do. Yeah. And that is, I get up every morning and I write a thousand words, and then my day starts. So, so if I can write, I just, I, I. I let the afternoons for my story permeating, for me having fun, for me to just sort of move on with myself um, and figure out where the story's going. And then I get up in the morning and I'm fresh and I can disappear into my fantasy world and just write, just write. Um, and when I get up to a thousand words, then I can stop and the day's mine, all mine. So oh, I can wow. take my kayak out or I can walk my dog or I can work in the garden or I can just play it's and and have that time just to let I need that time to let the story settle but then the next morning I because I'm contracted I write those thousand words if I'm really enthusiastic I will write more or let myself go more but I try not I try to stop myself by lunchtime I'm because I I can burn my I've learned over the years that I can actually burn out if I push myself too far I've written maybe six, seven thousand words in a day. Um, and you maybe can write that for three or four days and then you basically have to take a month off because <laughs> because you've run out of, of playtime in your head. There, there aren't... You know, you, when you say, are my stories the same, if I start writing at that pace, then my stories do become the same. I haven't got that time to be fresh and to, to make up new, fabulous, interesting plots that are completely different. That's fascinating. So if you're writing a 1,000 words a day, the average Mills and Boone, is there a sort of word length? That for, for, for the, for the um, lines that I write for around about um, 50,000, between about forty five and 55,000 words. So you're sort of looking at... About 200 pages. Okay, right. And, and that must take you three months? It takes so? me about three months. And, and that, 
by the time I can, I write them faster, but then there's editing time, and and once it goes to my editor, she always sends back. This this story has great potential. Would you like to just tweak it, <laughs> fulfill that potential by maybe doing oh. this, maybe doing this, maybe doing this? You don't mind though. Do you, is that a good thing? She's usually right. Okay. <laughs> so do you write a draft and then rewrite it, or is it pretty much as you go? How does the editing process work for you? I some some writers. First of all, I never make a plan. Oh, okay. Um, You're I'm not a, a plotter. I'm not a. I'm not a plotter. I hate plotting. Um, I'm a pantser. I think. Is I'm it a, a panster? Is that what we pan- call the pantser? Like pantser. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I fly by the seat of my pants all right. the time, which sometimes gets me into trouble. But I just have. Um, I start off with a couple of characters in my head, and I launch them straight into the middle of trouble set up this enormous conflict um which all just by the end of by the end of a book when I know when the plot's um going I'm starting to be bored so already my next story is starting to permeate so by the time I finish a book I'm rearing to go on the next so then I generally just launch into it get about 70 pages in into it and and I'm having this love I'm just throwing problem after problem after problem huge conflict while my editor's reading the last book, right, she then sends me back her potential that has to be <laughs> <laughs> fulfilled. I work on that, and then I go back to my original my book, and I look at seventy pages, and I think, oh, they are in such trouble. How the heck am I going to get them out of there? <laughs> Which is kind of a good way to work. It's fun. So I do spend the next you know one hundred and thirty pages racking my brains trying to figure out how they can actually get a reasonable resolution that's not going to stretch my readers belief. so it sounds like actually the thing that really keeps you motivated and going is the conflict finding these two characters and creating these conflicts because you say that you know when you've written sort of 170 pages you're getting a little bored and that's because i guess things are getting resolved and you simply just have to write that happy ending Look, and not- tell us all the lovely stuff that's going to happen for me there's nothing more boring than a happy ending but unfortunately <laughs> My readers love it, and I do get notes from my editor saying you've just cut it off too short. Come on, oh. give, them, give your readers a good one. So you have to give them the really the, full-on happy ending. Well, at the end of the story, I sort of know with it. I, in my heart, I know that they're going to have three kids, and they're going to travel, <laughs> and they're going to have a fabulous life, and things are going to be really great for them, and the wedding's going to be absolutely gorgeous, and they're going to bring all these minor characters back in, and little threads are going to be tied up. I know all that. But I, so I need to actually discipline myself to sit down and let the reader know as And well. write it. Do the happy endings vary? Do they always, always get married, have kids? Is that, I mean, is that the universal happy ending? Obviously there are people out there who don't have children or don't get married or but still have happy lives. The universal ending is that they're going to stay together for, ah, for, right. for, forever. I mean, the, the, the marriage, not necessarily the kids, not necessarily the kids might have already happened, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the last in the last book or, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. So... Um, um, so that's not a prerequisite, um, and certainly not a prerequisite for the genre. But the 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 implication at the end always has to be um, a long time future together. It's interesting if you write a romance for young adults, that doesn't necessarily have to be implied either. But there still has to be an implication that the next couple of years are going to be really good. Oh, right, so, for the younger person. <laughs> right, for the younger because person. so much can, can change. That's exactly right. So do you actually believe that there is someone out there for everybody, that you find your soulmate? Um, that might be too personal. Obviously it, would be, obviously 
I would love everybody to find somebody who can just always be in their corner. And But for some people, of course, it's not going to be possible. And for some people, they've found their perfect mate and then something awful's happened mm. and things have happened or whatever. For me, I've been incredibly lucky um, in that I've, you know, I'm a, we're about to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> I've had no idea. But, but, but it's, but for, you know, I think that that idea that there has to be there is somebody out there maybe if there's not maybe maybe our books are a little bit of a comfort while you wait and while things are or or even if you've decided that you know sod it I'm I'm not going to have I'm not going to happy ever after is not going to be me I can still hop into a, yes, a romance yes. and have a couple of a couple of hours of really good romp yeah and and feel good about it yeah it's interesting um the demographic who reads the the really sexy books compared to the demographic who who reads the the um, the tenderer, sweeter books, you would have thought that maybe the sexier books were the younger readers and the more tender books, yeah. um, the older readers. And in fact, um, small surveys that have been done would actually um, indicate the reverse. Really? That that. Young, if you if if you're in your twenties and thirties or whatever, and you and you're on the dating scene or whatever, sex is pretty easy to obtain. And, yes, yes, and these days yeah, it's it true. That. So, having buying buying a romance for sex is is not really necessary. But what you want is what you want to learn about, what you would indulge about is the fantasy or is the hope that there is your mate, the, the, the mm-hmm. tender, the touching, the contacts or whatever. As you get older, maybe the tender is there, maybe you have a mate who's just um, solid, and solid reliable. Or maybe you're a widow and, and you've got grandkids or whatever, or maybe you're in a nursing home um, and you've become even slightly more isolated. But you've still got the tender and the loving. You've got your big family around you and you whatever. But where's the sex? Right. <laughs> so, so pick up one of the the, the romances. And, and, and maybe sex. people just like reading about sex. They, maybe they do. I mean, it's a fairly maybe. universal human Absolutely. It's a know, human, it's a motivation human need. and need, isn't it? And it's really. fun. Yeah, it's, it's great it fun. fun. <laughs> well, it's certainly between the pages of Mills and Boone. So, okay, so what inspires you? How do you come up with ideas? I mean, you've written 116 books. That's going to be mind-boggling for quite a lot of people out there. How do you, where do you get your ideas? This is the common question that everybody <laughs> always wants to know. It's a common question that's impossible to answer because they're just there. Yeah. My mum said I used to make up stories in, in my cot. And, <laughs> and I always thought that everybody could. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really wasn't until I had kids of my own and they'd get into bed at night and say, tell me a story. And I'd tell them a story and they still weren't sleepy. And I'd say... Make up a story of your own. Just lie under the covers and be a pirate, be whatever, you know, go off on a sailing adventure. Do And they'd look at me totally blankly <laughs> as if I was this. And my husband would do the same. What do you mean? You make up stories in your head. But you've got stories in your head. <laughs> so they're just there and they're just they're always there mm-hmm. waiting to be put down. One of these days I might run out and that terrifies oh, me. Oh, I don't think that's likely really. But also... Are you inspired by people you know? Like, do you put, you know, do people who know you, are they a little afraid of you because perhaps they might end up in a Marion Lennox romance? 
I probably that... need to say that nobody's safe for me. No <laughs> incidents are safe for me because if there's anything fun, anything warm and tender, anything real life just makes its way into the pages of my book. Mm. Always carefully, always carefully concealed, of course. You know, that's a, right. the, the, the names are changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> um, but, but my family will absolutely... They, People recognise my dogs. People recognise the scenes, the, the places that I've been to. The, the I had a wonderful time a couple of years back. I I, I went on the GAN up through the centre of Australia, and then I took a, a cruise um, from Darwin around to Broome, and we just got off every day, and worked. Uh, it was just the most amazing, the amazing time. Yeah. And then I came home and set to. Fairly astonishing books there, straight romances, where very, very exciting things happened on the on the GAN, and very, very, very exciting things happened up in the Kimberley. <laughs> so there were drug smugglers and people being thrown overboard and crocodiles and yes, <laughs> heroes and heroines stranded on little rocky outcrops with absolutely in the middle of nowhere, and it was all it was just a lot of fun, but but based on things that had happened on the cruise, things that happened on the train. And people who were on the cruise and on the train with me would have actually re- actually recognised um, real events that hap- happened. But they certainly wouldn't have recognised real people right. or, or um, real crew members and things. You, I do need to be very careful. Absolutely. So as an author, you must have to be reasonably observant. I mean, OK, we're not writing literary fiction here, but... You you obviously are a successful writer who must have some powers to compel your readers to keep coming back to your novels. And you said you began with characters, two characters that you, you think up. So they must come across as real people to your readers. People talk about the author having a third eye. Mm. Um, and that third eye is always operating. As you said, nobody's safe. Um, but it's always... I find myself... I'm, always, I'm almost conscious of it, of my third eye, no matter how grim the situation or how exciting or whatever. Um, it, even, at, even at things like a funeral for, some, you know, for somebody who I love, there will always be a third eye that's somehow absorbing emotions and absorbing, um, you know, in a terrible circumstance. If I read things in the paper or whatever, there's a third eye sort of watchful all the time about about how people react to certain things and finding things. There was a, I remember an article in, in a Western Australian newspaper when I was staying over there for a while and a guy had had his, um, his thumb torn off. So the surgeons, it was, a, it was a fairly graphic sort of mm. rodeo accident or whatever, and the surgeons had actually removed his toe mm. and sewn his thumb on. And... and I can remember my daughter reading it going, oh, yuck. And I'm reading it going, oh, yuck, but, oh, I could use that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that third eye just operating all the time, which makes my books r- real, I, I believe. Mm. I, you know, my books are actually, I guess as an author, I, I am known for for books that even in their, even when they're fun and fantastical, there's at the core they are, um, my characters are, are, are quite... Believable and real. Well, I have to say, um, I've been reading Reunited with Her Surgeon Prince. I gather you don't do your own titles. Um, I do not do my own titles. Right. I, I I used to struggle to um, make up books, make up titles that were 
appropriate and and um, and, f- and fun enough to and and there was always there's always a um, a conflict between the title that I think I'd like and the title that Harlequin thinks will sell to 130 countries, 30 languages right. or whatever. That's okay. a, and and in the end I've just said, well, you know what? Yeah, you know your market better than I do. So just, just go, go for, for it. it. Every now and then I just get a bit uh, stigmatised and say... Well, this like, is one of these, you know, wonderful sort of fantasy romances where there's a, 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 a royal prince uh, who's about to become the king of a small kind of European state, Falkenstein. Did I say it correctly? And... Um, and of course, that part of the story is completely fan you know it's fantastical and 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 fun, you know, but what I find so interesting is that actually the dialogue and the relationship and the people come across as very real, you know they obviously they they've been dropped into a, a completely unreal in terms of genuine human experience for most people's situation, but they still have depth of character and they their reactions and feelings come across as very real. And I like going back and forth in the fantastical. Mm. Like for this one, he's suddenly and unexpectedly become the king. Yeah. Um, and he has to actually confess that he's already um, been married, um, and he he in fact has a child by mm. um, by that. F- by that first marriage who was never actually told anybody about and it was from when he was uh, really very young and he made a, a, a very quick trip to Australia and fell in love um, and she got pregnant. They married and then realised that the whole thing was just impossible. She had ties and he had ties so he had to go home to and 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 um, the child has been raised in Australia mm. and suddenly this child who has been completely out of the limelight is now the heir to the throne. Mm. So he has to come to Australia to the little outback town where she's working and and suddenly becomes totally immersed into her very real, very nitty-gritty world and then he has to try and talk her out of, talk her in somehow to come across and accept his fantasy world. Yeah, yeah, like. yeah, yeah. And the conflict between the two of them, um, I found actually was fun to do. Yeah, um, yeah. And, well, that comes across very strongly in the book, I must say. Now... So this is a, a made-up world, but many of the worlds of your books are real worlds, you know, obviously. But you set them all over the place, isn't that right? I set them. Oh, I do set them all over the place. If I've been, if they're real places, then I have to have been there. It's quite hard to do it if you haven't actually been there. Um, so have you been to Antarctica then? I actually don't. <laughs> okay, I haven't been to Antarctica. I confess that one, but I had a friend who spent twelve months over there, and he um, was no sooner off the boat than than I was basically saying, "Tell me all, tell me all." And we, I right. sat down there with all his photos and magazines and his his research from the time that he was over there. Um, I had the best, the best um, fun with that book, and then I had him proofread it for me, which oh, wow. was Great. totally essential because. He, you make stupid mistakes if you haven't been there, um, and because I've got such a vast readership, somewhere in some in the world, will will just uh, give my editor a hard time, and she'll give me a hard time because <laughs> so you think got something wrong. That's right. So things like I, I, I in the story, I had him put, pulling his boots on, and when Ron proofread, he said. Yeah, yeah, they don't wear boots. They wear really—it's um, almost like big um, woolen socks because 
boots um, will just completely slide from from under you anything you oh, know, the on, old, the the, on the ice on the ice. So, oh, okay. so he sort of stooped to you know, put his boots on and tie them up. So, what sort of plot do you come up with for Antarctica? <laughs> that was crazy. You want to hear oh, about? Really? It? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You want to hear about? Antarctica. I think we. I think we'd love to hear about it. My yeah. Antarctica plot. That was a. Um, that was during. I, I wrote that early, and it was during the AIDS. Um, the crisis, yeah. The age crisis, really. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if my heroine thought that she might have AIDS? That would be a, such a good plot device. You can see my head is crazy. I've seen all sorts of different things. And then I'm thinking, okay, so I threw all of these things in the first few, pa- in f- few chapters and then I have to get them out of trouble. So I have to figure out how the heck can she figure out she's got can she think she's got AIDS? Right. So I had her over there as a medical reporter, and he's a scientist. The hero, hero's a scientist, and I didn't want the sort of um, yucky sort of in, you know, caught by um, by sharing needles or whatever AIDS. No. So I thought I needed an an AIDS which was caught in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh dear, that sounds dreadful, doesn't it? But but so so I had a minor hero. A minor character over there who was also a researcher and he was doing work that was intensely important um, but he um, had a blood transfusion early before the AIDS had been sort of um, thought of as a problem and he was HIV positive but of course he hadn't confessed that to anybody or he wouldn't have been allowed to have been taken across to the Antarctic to, so he um, kept that completely quiet and while my friend was over there, a leopard seal had actually attacked um, somebody under the ice. It had just actually launched itself through the ice and, and attacked somebody who Which was very badly injured. Do, don't leopard they? seals, I gather, yeah. do. That's yeah, right. Okay. Well, I found that out and researched that, and that seemed absolutely plausible. So I had my minor character and my heroine walking across the ice, and my leopard seal launched itself out and attacked. Um, and my minor character was injured, and my heroine brave girl that she was she's especially um launched in to save him and 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 oh blood blood their blood oh, cross mingled mingled oh, so dear. my minor character had to actually confess to my heroine that she might have, might H- have H- 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 but please don't tell anybody about it because it's going to destroy my research um but you can't you can't be tested anyway for a two sort of two months window so you yeah. won't be able to be tested until you get home so there's nothing you can do about it so for the next couple of months she was stuck down in the antarctic with by this time her totally in love hero right but she wasn't allowed to let him nearer, and she mm. couldn't tell him why. So don't even kiss me. No, 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 no and I can't tell you why. Oh! Which worked really, really well as a it plot would've, device. Would've, without him being a sparkly vampire. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, however, then I sent it across to England to my editor and, and had a phone call late at night to say, Marion, have you just infected the entire <sighs> leopard seal population with, and my, your readership are going to worry that you just <laughs> committed environmental disaster. Introduce HIV, that's AIDS right. into Let the entire, you know, so penguin, that's exactly. so, whale population. So could I, could I please reassure, have my hero reassure the readers, you know, by, by reassuring the heroine that yeah. there's no... So then I actually had to find out that that was... Okay. Okay, that that was real. 
So my husband's a doctor, so I, my, my editor was on the end of the phone, so I basically raced in and shook David awake and said, David, can leopard seals catch AIDS? <laughs> Is that his specialty? Actually, no, not his specialty. <laughs> and he just rolled over and groaned. Um, so then the next day I thought, how can I do this? How can I figure this one out? So I rang the AIDS hotline. <gasps> so, <laughs> really? Who... Um, you oh, really? What? They must have thought you were a little unusual. That way, to say the least. <laughs> well, when they finally stopped laughing, they <laughs> they put me. They gave me the number of Ron Lucas, who was the head of the then in, head of infectious diseases at Fairfield <laughs> Hospital. So by this stage, I was thinking this is a bit. Oh, would such a man respond? So I rang up and was put in put through to his receptionist. And I thought she might just give him a message and ask for a yeah, yes yeah. or no. But when she stopped laughing, she said, no, no, this call's going through. This call's going straight <laughs> <laughs> And he was fantastic. He was so generous. But, yeah, he, in, in, when he finally stopped laughing, he actually was able to tell me that the green, green monkeys were the only animals genetically close enough to, to humans to carry the, the AIDS virus, and they actually don't get sick. So, so wow. I was a, my hero was able to say knowledgeably to my heroine, "No, no, don't worry, it's fine." <laughs> <laughs> That's research. Cool. research. I'm so relieved. <laughs> well, so was I. Because it's just... quite possible that someone with HIV/AIDS has actually been, you know, bitten by a leopard seal, and it would have messed with my plot. It would have been dreadful. <laughs> what would you have done? <laughs> but research is the best fun. So is that book still available? It is. It's called The Last Eden. And it's the so Last it's, Eden? The Last Eden. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to go and look for it. It is. So on, is, it, yeah. is it one of your favourites? It probably is, just because it was fun. Yeah, absolutely. It did take me a lot longer than normal to write that book, too, because I hadn't been there, because I didn't have it seated into my consciousness right i had to research everything. i hope the leopard seal features largely on the cover with your hero and heroine possibly not that's another story too oh, oh we love stories <laughs> we love stories fess up is this another confession my favorite people are people who love stories yeah yeah my books are edited out of england and they're edited really carefully uh and um mistakes are really frowned on because we get such a lot of dire feedback However, I was away on holidays when this book came out, so I didn't get a chance to look at the cover art when it was done. And the cover art is done, because we're an international company, the cover art is in fact done in Canada. So my cover artist had a brief look at the story and thought, yes, great, okay, I can do this. She did me the most beautiful painting uh, of of my hero and heroine in their anoraks and so on in the ice, and they just looked fabulous. And in the background, she put two ruddy great polar bears. (laughs) Which, as you might know, polar bears don't live in the Antarctic, and I'm still, and my editor's still getting letters saying, excuse me, did you know that... (laughs) They're in the Arctic Circle, right. not the Antarctic Circle. So all my work... Of, I guess yeah. the Canadian just didn't have the Antarctic in, the Antarctic bit, yeah. in her mind. Yes. Oh, that is so funny. I'm going to have to find this book now. The okay. Last Eden, I definitely want to get a copy for my shelf. Well, I, I don't think you'll find it in, in paperback, but you will find it as an e-book. It might have to go on your Kindle now. Oh, but then right. it won't have the cover, will it? It won't have the cover, thank heavens. Oh, no. Okay, I'm going to make this a lifetime I do think mission. The cover, I think yeah, the, the, the e-books come out. You do have the cover 
Oh, okay. There. Oh, all right. That's all right. Yeah. I'll have to have a look. Yes. I, mostly have I, did, I did actually get the copy of that from the artist and have it framed. I feel quite discombobulated now. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, now, Marion, before we go, and mm-hmm. it's been wonderful, wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your generosity and all the marvellous stories. All my pleasure. We always ask our authors for their three books for the book cave. Do you remember them? Three books. Yes. Books that I the books that I just love of any author. Yes, any, any author, and these are the books that you would put into our virtual time capsule, that you would basically give to the world to read a thousand years from now. Three books that I just love off the top of my head. Um, first is is Anne of Green Gables. Ah, without without a doubt, because that book launched me into thinking. Writing is magical. Reading is magical. Um, that book has been read by me over and over again. Um, it was given by my my grandmother. Read it. She read it. She gave it to my mum. My mum gave it to me. Um, my daughter is in fact Anne with an E. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I th- that book is just uh, is, is is just such a loved book. Um, Another book that I've that I've actually found and loved it would be Ianni Prue's The mm. Shipping The Shipping News. Um, that's a very very different book, but I believe that book is such the most amazing book of the power of redemption. Mm. Um, it's a very very different type. It's I guess in a sense it's a romance, a mm. very very different type of romance. Mm. Um, it is. It just spoke to something deep within me, and as well as that, she's built such a world. Mm. Um, the town that they that they moved to, the the island, the old house on the bleak, rocky shores, and so on. I have, I have, I go back to that book again. It's a visceral book. It is it? very visceral. Very visceral. Do you ever find it extraordinary that this ability to put little marks? on paper or on a computer that then translates into these extraordinary experiences. That's that right, that you can actually, you can move into that book and you're there. Yeah, you yeah. feel it, taste you feel it, the salt and it. the spray and you the can. water. And I, I, I still find it extraordinary that it, you, that, that the words made up of these little letters which are made up of those lines and marks can can do that can to a human, to the human mind, that can, it can create whole falcon the you know kingdom of falkenstein or the extraordinary um you know newfoundland coast it it's is I, remarkable i that book leaves me in awe mm. um, if, if um and, and fun i think for fun um it would have to be georgia taylor's the unknown ajax oh simply because that i am in awe of of uh, Georgette's power of plotting. Mm. That book, in terms of sheer fun, um, was a was a total frolic from beginning to end. It was a hero. He's a hero to die for. The last couple of chapters, her plotting just left me gasping. How did she do that? Mm. How did she? How did she have so many characters doing going all sorts of directions. She built up to such a climax. It was, it it leaves me laughing. It just yeah. So Even just thinking about it makes me laugh. Makes I must laugh. say. Yeah. I have to say that book is really a masterclass 
in character arcs and plotting because every character in the book, even the minor characters, end up changing from the beginning of the book to the, to the end of the book. They've all learned and changed and evolved and it's quite extraordinary. But the imbroglio ending is just extraordinary and the way she pulls that off and just leaves you gasping and laughing, it's quite remarkable. There's a fantastic... Um, Audible have done a brilliant rendition with a, by a guy called Daniel Philpot. Oh, really? And he's actually from Yorkshire, so he's able to do the Yorkshire accents superbly, and it's brilliantly and I brilliantly acted. And I must say, having read that book many times, that hearing it on this, I actually listened to it three times because I'd never quite appreciated the genius of that of the plot in that book. And can he? But can he do an Aunt Aurelia? He was brilliant as Aunt Aurelia. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, my gosh. Lady Aurelia who comes in and says, you know, I as a mere woman. (laughs) You know, she's the most powerful person in the room. And the 11 earls who rush to the aid of so noble a daughter. It just makes you laugh. It's just wonderful stuff. Well, those are three magnificent contributions to our virtual time capsule. Lovely. I hope, were they already there? If, if somebody else no, no, no one, no one has selected those three. Oh, excellent. So it's yeah, excellent. Like we have many wonderful books in the take time a, capsule. Take a look at whatever else is Indeed, there. indeed. Lovely. A great eclectic mix, in fact. Well, Marion Lennox, what a pleasure. My absolute Just pleasure to be here. Revelatory and uh, inspirational, I have to say. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you in the book cave. Lovely, Jen. Thank you. Pleasure. Assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.